1: This is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books in Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Aria Halliday, who is the author of By Black How Black Women Transformed U.S. Pop Culture. Aria, thanks for being here with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. So, could you start by telling us a little bit about how this book came about and how it came to be? Well, as
2: much as true of, of most books these days, um, it started as my dissertation, but I have to say that this book is like 70% new content, right? So if you go back and you try to find my dissertation and match it up to the, this is not the same text at all, right? So um, it really started, I was in graduate school at Purdue University in American Studies and I was noticing how many people were really drawn to Nicki Minaj over the past decade or so. And I, to be honest, I'm not a Barb. I I like did not understand, right? I was like, I don't understand why people like like her so much, why is she compelling, why is she interesting? There's a thing that she's doing that people are really attached to. And I was kind of frustrated. I was like, am I not getting it? Am I missing the memo? Um, and so I was just thinking a lot about how at the time, like Nicki Minaj, has like created this space for herself that didn't really exist for Black women, especially hip hop artists, for a long time. And so I'm like, what is it that's that's really kind of uh, encouraging people to see her, um, be connected to her? Um, what things are people really attached to? And this whole Barbie Cinderella thing that she was doing, especially um, at the early part of her career um, around 2008, 2009 people were just all over it. Like I was going to parties and people had, and I talk about this in a book a little bit. Like I remember black girls having like pink hair and like there were competitions to be like, who looked the most like her. Right. So people were really into like Nicki Minaj and her whole aesthetic as a Barbie. And I was like, well, what is it about like black women and Barbies that we're just not like seeing, but also like this particular image is making us really like, just attached to? Like, why do we want to be her? Why do we love this connection? Why are we interested in this? Um, And it kind of spiraled. I'm sure my committee would say it spiraled from there. Um, So that's the easiest, like, beginning. But the book really came from, you know, a set of conversations I was having with people about, like, the like black millennial moment, like coming from the 90s. There's all this like literature about spice girls and how like this post-feminism, right? This not really feminism and it's not doing anything for us. And I'm like, okay, but like black I don't know that black girls had this experience. And so I was really trying to like navigate, you know, this pop culture moment that's supposed to be a zeitgeist for a lot of people. But then black women are also maybe experiencing those spaces differently than what the scholarship is saying. Um, for the most part.
1: Right. And so you kind of set this in kind of looking at and theorizing black women's role in sort of consumption and popular culture. And so can you, you want to talk a little bit more about sort of how you really sort of come to this and situate this? And and I, I mean, you say in the book, like you come to it to as a millennial and what that also means for you examining and exploring this space.
2: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I I start the book talking about the fact that I was, you know, raised in the nineteen nineties. I was a little black girl in the south with other little black girls in the south, and that means a particular thing for how I see the world, how I experience. Um, these things, um, but I think for a, a lot of the conversations that I had with people, both the creators or the people who are creating these products for us to consume, but also the people who love them, you know, shout out to 25th anniversary that happened yesterday of um, the 1997 the Cinderella with Whitney Houston and Brandy Norwood, right? That like people have been attached, they attached to these particular um, cultural moments. And so for me, it was, you know, one, I didn't care about Barbies (laughs) Two, I didn't really think I was interested in Nicki Minaj. Right. So I was like, I'm missing a whole like thing. I understand Cinderella. I I get that, but like, what is it about this narrative together for black women that is like informative and interesting, but also that black women continue to want to create out of. Right. So, um, I was thinking like, okay, well, if, if, I know black women who are super attached to collecting Barbie dolls. I know black women who are super attached to this idea of like a Cinderella princess. There's tiaras for everything. Um, you know, (laughs) the late two thousands or early two thousands, there's like the whole like my sweet 16 thing that happened on MTV. So this idea that like you should be a princess at some point in your life. Um, and then, like, what that has to do with Nicki Minaj, of course, because uh, so, it's happening at the same time, culturally. We're seeing these same things happening together. Um, and so I I was really interested in thinking about, like, what this, like, feminist literature, the ideas that we have about feminism and how it exists in the 1990s and 2000s, what that actually means for Black women, because we don't actually have a lot of literature for how Black women experience popular culture, whether it's geared to them or not, but especially if it's geared to them and also created by Black women themselves.
1: Right and it's super interesting. you start out with the Barbie and there's history in there that you know I had no idea of some of that relationship in history with especially black women who are working for Mattel and doing that work. So can you talk a little bit about that kind of like the Black Barbie, but also sort of some of the history you talk about with um, dolls and, and sort of dolls as playthings for especially young black black girls. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it's so funny. I was talking
2: to someone about this yesterday that I consider myself to be a contemporary scholar, right? I'm not a historian. Historians would not claim me at all, right? But I found myself saying, you know, well, I think this conversation started in the 1980s. And then I would do some research and found, no, it started in the 1960s. And I would do more research and found, oh, no, it's actually from the 40s. And oh, no, wait, now I'm in the 1920s. And okay, wait a second, now I'm in 1905 right? And I, and I refuse to go any further back, right? But uh, I started thinking about and, and seeing research for kind of the first Black dolls that emerge on the market. These are not Barbies. They're just dolls. You know, uh, originally most dolls were like uh, porcelain, right? So they're either created to not really be played with, right? They're collections or they're these um, dolls that are made from cloth where you can toss them around and play with them however you want. And There's this black man, Richard Henry Boyd um, from Memphis, who's thinking about, I'm sorry, he's from Nashville, who's thinking about, how to use these dolls to create a narrative around racial pride for Black people, right? So this is right after the turn of the century. There are a lot more people who are able to um, participate in the consumer marketplace. They have more money, right? Slavery is over. The kind of post-slavery moment in Reconstruction is over, right? 19th century... um, kind of ideas about Black people are still kind of circulating, but Black people have more of a a space to say, hey, we have some other things to offer. mostly because they have the money to do so, right? And so I make this argument in the book that, you know, right right around 1904, 1905, Richard Henry Boyd is, is thinking about how to teach Black children, you know, not these kind of racist images and ideas that are floating around, but this other kind of idea of racial pride, right? How to think about yourself as a Black person in a positive light, you know, um, against even these kind of really negative images that are floating around. And so he starts making these dolls And partially it's a, it's a, it's an advancement in filament, right? So usually dolls are like this like kind of weird off white color that was happening. And there's a German company that starts um, being able to make them browner, right? They started, it's kind of like a brown green filament. If you ever see old dolls in in a museum, they kind of have a green undertone to them. It's that. And so he's like, okay, well maybe we'll, we're able to make black dolls. Like this is the opportunity. And so he starts selling them starts making a lot of money and he's like, well, if you believe yourself to be a, a proponent of racial pride you need to buy this doll for every single child that you know right this doll is the impetus for racial pride this is how you how you understand yourself as a black person through play right and he starts making this argument and then there's people you know heavy hitters like Marcus Garvey who weigh in around 1915 who are like okay so the dolls that you're creating are kind of like light brown and the dolls that I think that we should be making our really dark skin. And so you have Richard Henry Boyd and Marcus Garvey, right, having these intellectual debates among other people about what Blackness should look like in the popular sense. Um, and that's really where we get this kind of conversations around representation that we still see presently. Um, and so the book really comes from uh, the idea that like there's a proper way to represent Black people, especially Black women, and that these playthings that are supposed to be just you know, innocuous, you play with them when you feel like it, whatever, actually are imbued with this information about racial pride, about racial consciousness, and ultimately, like, who Black people should be, right, ultimately. And so Black kids and white kids and other kids are playing with these dolls and are getting some of this information through this play process.
1: And one of the, for me, one of the really interesting things is that um, there was... There were black women behind the scenes, right, creating these dolls and really kind of pushing at some of these companies and in these corporations for representation and what that means. And and often we don't talk about who, you know, like who's creating these and who these women are. Um, So could you talk a little bit about, you know, what you were seeing with that, too? Yeah, I mean, I should
2: I would say that, first of all, doing any kind of research where you're talking about the backside of corporations is going to be hard for anyone who wants to do that. (laughs) It's a lot of work. Right. But I'll say that. Um, a lot of these women, um, you know, the 1990s and the early 2000s were this moment where a lot of corporations were like, OK, we're, we're seeing this opportunity for, for Black people to really spend money and they care about what their image looks like. How do we get ourselves into the space where we can both cater to their needs, but also make money from the things that they say they want? And it was mostly Black women. I talk about Lavinia Perkins, uh, Kitty Black Perkins is really how she's known and how she gets hired by Mattel like right at the beginning of the night, the early 1980s, late 1970s and how she's responsible for the first black Barbie doll. But so much of it is based on like her experience as a black woman. She's, Im- she's imbuing the doll with some of what, you know, she would like to see as a consumer. Right. And so I talk about, I call it embodied objectification. And it's really this process where black women are, you know, in boardrooms or they're in the designer seat and they're saying, okay, if I was a consumer, if, if I was a black woman as a consumer wanted to buy this product, what would I want to see? Right. So they're literally using their names, their cousins names, they're using clothes that they would wear They right. It's it's really a, a full scope, kind of look into what Black women particularly at the time were interested in and you can see that happening both through how they're consuming the product, like who's actually buying this, who's interested is it a collector's item, that kind of thing, but also from the Black women who are creating it sitting in the boardrooms and so my book is really trying to like make that connection between it's not just people who are consuming it and buying it on one side of it, but it's also people who are creating it and that relationship between the two is really what changes in a progressive is what we see around representation in the present.
1: Right. And I loved, um, I appreciated even like thinking about like, right, you said they're designing the clothes, they're doing this, and they're also creating it in ways that it can, it's a Barbie, right? Um, You can transfer those clothes to multiple Barbies if you wanted to. So also thinking about that, especially when young kids are playing with dolls or, you know, using dolls, that there are things that are different, but there's also things that can be interchanged and just making it more normal, like making the dolls more normalized. And so I thought that was really interesting too, to think about kind of bringing in some histories and spaces into those dolls and what that meant for like the larger, doll community. I don't even know if that's the right way to say it.
2: (laughs) There's research now, like Mattel did a study in 2020 about, with some researchers at Cardiff University about how playing with dolls helps with empathy. Right. It helps teaches children empathy. Right. And then there's also uh, scholars like Robin Bernstein, who has a book called Racial Innocence, where she talks about some of these dolls in in the 19th century and 18th century were, were opportunities for especially white children to practice racist fantasies. Right. They were practice lynching dolls and they would practice burning them and beating them, right? And so dolls, you know, all the way from the 18th century to the present have this opportunity to teach children something, right? Um, And it happens through this particular um, process of play, right? That imaginative process. And Mattel is really the first company that starts to market directly to children, which makes it really important in this kind of relationship between what children are learning about who they are and who they want to be, but also how they are under race and racialization, especially in the United States. Mm
1: -hmm. And so, so you start with dolls and then you move into, like you said, this kind of um, Cinderella, this Disney moment and what's happening there. So can you um, talk about, so we kind of move from young children into sort of teens and adolescents. So can you talk a bit about um, Cinderella and Disney and, and what you see kind of going on with that princess moment?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I was so interested in in why Cinderella in particular has been one of the stories that's been adapted over and over again. Like, I mean, the original Cinderella is like 1950 or something like that. Right. And, but people are still attached to this narrative that like, you know, a poor girl who's treated poorly is going to be picked up by a prince and all of her woes end. Right. And, um, but there's something in particular about this story being adapted with black women as the characters. Like this is, we don't really see a black Snow White. We don't see a black, you know, uh, a lot of these other kinds of little, even Little Mermaid. Now that's a conversation, but you know, we haven't seen that recreated, but Cinderella is one that keeps, I mean, even on Broadway, even in um, novels and books, like we keep seeing the story being represented particularly with black women as Cinderella. And so I was interested in how and why like this particular story is one that apparently Black people are attached to, to keep recreating it. But also what, especially this 1997 Cinderella, what is actually being said, you know, kind of underneath all of the glamour of Disney, right? Um, and there are a lot of people who talk about, you know, all the things that Disney might teach us from their uh, princess narratives. But I was interested in, in that particular um, uh movie and as well as the 2009 Princess and the Frog, which is a very similar princess-esque kind of story, um, because uh, they both have, you know, they're heralded as like the first Black princess, the first Black Cinderella, and they have kind of huge... You know, pop culture icons who are who are taking on this role. Whitney Houston is being the fairy godmother. She was originally supposed to be Cinderella. Completely changes how we think about where this Cinderella came from. If if Whitney Houston is the person who's really making it happen, right? And I think in the same way, Princess and the Frog. I mean, has so many really popular black women actresses, including Oprah Winfrey, um, who really are making this movie happen. And so I I, I wrote I write about the fact that so much of the narrative is built from Black women's experience because Black women are at the helm of creating these stories and as well as like propelling the actual character. So like um, Princess and the Frog, Anika Noni Rose is literally the archetype that they use to create this, like down to the point that, you know, Tiana is left-handed and Anika Noni Rose is left-handed, right? Um, And so I really was interested in, How these narratives coincide with the ones about Barbies and that these are these narratives around supposedly wholesome images that black women are really tied to to try to create a narrative around our own representation and positivity, especially in pop culture, where we have all this kind of negative imagery about black women being mean and ugly and nasty. Right. We have Cinderella right that starts off as being someone who's not supposed to be attractive not supposed to be someone who love but that becomes you know the marker of her kind of turn to being a princess right like the fact that nobody wanted her and now she's the, she's the queen right <laughs> so i think that that narrative especially around like you know, the rags to riches narratives that we have in the United States is one that we really uh, attribute to. And so I think, you know, Black people, Black women especially, see Cinderella as this opportunity to connect to this um, really large scale princess project that we have in the United States, but also kind of stake a claim about like what possibilities there, there are for Black women and Black girls as they age.
1: Right. I thought it was really, you know, there were things that I thought was really interesting and even looking at when you talked about um the princess and the frog and taking, and how I read it in your book, I was like, Oh, I like the connection that it like was released right after Katrina, but it was in new Orleans, but making it this magical space. So also kind of, it was interesting to think about and, and how you talked about the ways that um they use certain spaces, but I don't, didn't necessarily always talk about the racialization of those spaces. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Um, And I thought that was really interesting, too, to how these narratives move forward um, in the space. Absolutely. I mean, I think... Um, you know,
2: I talk about how New Orleans is a really interesting space to have this, you know, first Black princess in the Disney pantheon kind of appear. They picked this moment in the 1920s, which is really interesting around, as I already said, this is around a moment where people are in real time are talking about representation for Black people, what's the right way to be represented, right? But there is also these parts of the the um, movie that, you know, raise some real questions about how they are um, imagineering this, you know, uh, scenery around New Orleans and what Tiana's particular place is in that location. I mean, her mother is a seamstress for one of the richest Um, white people in town right but there isn't really commentary about why she would have this job or even why Tian would be you know best friends and playing with his daughter Charlotte um it's kind of you know it's, it's kind of understood as just it's just the way it is right and so I think there's um you know I'm writing about right now this idea that like this common sense idea that like uh, racism just kind of happens, right? It's just kind of part of the thing that we do, which is why you wouldn't question a little black girl in the bedroom of a little white girl playing and talking about princesses and frogs, right? It's just part of this thing that Hollywood does as a common sense narrative. But um, I'm always interested in, in this particular chapter, like why black women would be invested in that as well. Like what is it actually doing Um intellectually, for us to say, okay, we're going to stake claim on this story and let it be ours, you know, with Oprah Winfrey kind of shopping it to Black mothers and their daughters. Anika Noni Rose is doing a lot of um, promotion around it. Even the really popular um, Black hair care brand, um, Carol's Daughters, is making bubble bath and shampoo based on these, right? So it becomes kind of a cultural zeitgeist of its own in Black communities for Black women to say, like, we can be Cinderella, too.
0: to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com system
1: right I, and so you like and you move from this so you know we got this discussion and then at the same time we can talk about miss nikki minaj right we've got nikki coming in and and you know doing her thing and being really important um uh, you know in general, you know, generally, but also at that time, right in the, you know, t- 2009, I think you said 2009 to 2018. She's the one female um, rap artist pop like in the sort of popular cultural spaces so can you talk a little bit we'll come back to talking a little bit about nikki and why nikki is so important (laughs) yeah i mean so i didn't even
2: think about this until i was writing this particular book but like i I never considered myself like a hip-hop person i always listened to it it was on in the background but i was like after writing this i was like oh my i'm i know much more than i let on because you know i remember when nikki kind of appeared um you know a lot of You know, old school hip hop heads will say like her verse on Kanye West Monster is one of the ones that kind of put her on the map. People understood her as a lyricist. She was making this really beautiful music, but again, her hair was pink. She was outrageous. I mean, she's sitting next to Anna Winter in this like bubblegum outfit. Outrageous, especially at the beginning. It was almost too much, right? But, right? I mean, she so she kind of like moves throughout her career, especially in this moment, this like ten year period as really being the only black woman who's making you know, a lot of noise, um, if you will, on the pop culture stage, you know, whether she's making pop music, she's featured on a lot of songs, a lot of popular artists, she's remaking songs, Madonna's in love with her, like, she's really, right, she's sitting at, you know, Paris Fashion Week, she's doing a lot of stuff that I would say previous Black women rappers were not really able to do, partially because of the moment but also how like hip-hop has changed in the time and so nikki was really the only person making those kinds of moves between about 2008 and 2009 and 2018. Of course in the background of course is is the president, presidential election of Barack Obama and having black people in the White House and this whole kind of narrative around things changing around race and how we talk about race. And so Nikki's kind of at this really important moment um, where she's able to not only pull on these ideas of Barbie and princesses and Cinderella that are happening at the same time. And also that black women are, are important in those spaces, but also, you know, doing it with the kind of rap bravado that we would expect of, any black male rapper as well and so she's doing it in a really interesting way that she's like i'm sexy and i'm cute but i'm i might also rip your head off if i decide to rap right um which changes the narrative a lot about you know what we expect of of black women rappers and i think you know sets the stage for a lot of the people that we see popular right now
1: right and i also love that she has this embrace of sexiness but also this embrace of nerdiness in some ways right and which is which is another thing that kind of like she's like pushing the envelope in all these ways um that you don't really think about um and yes and her fashion sense and and all right all of it in one big package. <laughs> Yes, I mean, early on, she talks about how Cyndi Lauper is one of her,
2: like, inspirations. I don't know any Black female rappers who've ever mentioned Cyndi Lauper, right, as one of, and she, I mean, she went to a a, a Black a theater high school, so even having that kind of theater background and understanding herself as a performer in that way, I mean, it, it, she changes some things.
1: <laughs> when I read that about Cyndi Lauper, I'm like, it kind of all makes sense. But yes, I was like, how odd. <laughs> it's odd. It's very odd. And I think,
2: I mean, part of her like cachet is that she pulls on these ideas that are kind of odd and you're kind of out of place. and But you're like, I like this. I like Cindy Lauper. I like Madonna. I like princesses. I like Barbies okay, I can go with this, right? Like, and you're kind of like, you know, kind of lulled into this acceptance. Um, And then the more you listen to her, the more you understand her work, the more you listen to her albums, you're like, okay, she, she has some really deep understanding of herself as a performer, as a Black woman, as a Caribbean woman. She has a lot of range, right, as a singer, as a rapper. Um, And I think, you know, we start to see, you know, space created for, you know, people like Lizzo, people like Megan Thee Stallion that we see now and all the diversity of the things that they were doing because, you know, she was out there by herself doing some stuff that was pretty odd at the time and also caused a lot of controversy,
1: yeah, I was going to say you also bring up some of the controversy that she caused with Anaconda and also um, some of the ways that she was sort of appropriated and what that, especially with um, folks like Miley Cyrus, mm-hmm. who we could have a whole nother conversation about, <laughs> it which wouldn't, would not be as fun. Um, but like, but and thinking about like that idea of Black women and being visually seen and co-option. And so can you talk a little bit about sort of the those things as well.
2: Yeah. So I I also use the Nicki Minaj chapter as a way to think about like what happens when Black women, you know, as I said, are in the boardrooms, they're in the artist seat, they're creating these images, they're being sold to Black women or Black girls. Um, And then, you know, someone else is like, I really like this image, let me use it. Right. So Nicki Minaj and I think her career, you know, becomes someone because she has all of these really odd places that we talked about. People feel attached to her, but that also means they want to use her image for other purposes. And so I talk a little bit about how people like Molly Cyrus and other people use Nicki Minaj's image to make their own selves really popular. Right. So it, it follows a, a kind of typical notion of that, like, you know, it's something that's really popular in a black community, it becomes mainstream or, you know, it crosses over. And then it becomes something that like people should adopt and use in other places. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I think about how even in this contemporary moment with the popularity of memes and gifts and all those other things like it really completely changes the cultural context to use them in other places and how that even disrupts that relationship that i talked about earlier between black women artists and black women consumers and what might be happening in those spaces it completely changes the parameters of that connection
1: right and so you you kind of then we you know you look at sort of barbie the cinderella Nicki minaj and then really move into you know sort of end with this idea of what this is meaning now and and you talk about the movie harriet and some other things so can you talk a bit about like what is this like what are you seeing now um where are we moving where are we going to what does this mean for black women
2: Yeah, I mean, I pivot at the very end of the book to thinking about, okay, so Black women are creating, Black women are consuming, there are other people who are also involved in this process of appropriation or or moving the context of things. So what does that actually mean, you know, given... You know, the murder of George Floyd, giving the murder of Breonna Taylor. Like, what what are we actually doing in this kind of cultural moment where you can change the context of any conversation at any point in time? But there's also this really interesting relationship and important one between um, cultural producers and cultural consumers, especially around race, gender and sexuality and I, I say that, you know, in, in some in some ways, and I say this in talks, and people and students especially get scared, but <laughs> I say that we have to distance ourselves from this idea that representation is going to solve all of our problems, right? Because representation in the most general sense is about a representative. And that means it's only gonna be a, a distillation or a really small amount of all of the possible opportunities or possibilities that exist right so in the same way that like we we have a representative democracy meaning we have one person or two people or three people who represent us you know at the federal government or state government level it's the same thing in terms of representation around culture and ethnicity we're only going to have one or two or three or five or ten for the billions of people that is supposed to represent right and so i i talk about the idea that you know representation is always going to fail us if we expect it to represent all of us all the time, right? And so we have to be okay with the fact that there are um, going to be representatives. There are going to be narratives that maybe we don't like, maybe we're not connected to, maybe we're not interested in, but having more options is always better, right, for the possibility of, like, diversity, literally the idea that there can be a lot of different things happening at the same time. We can like it, not like it, but we get to choose. When you only have two or you only have one, it doesn't even give you the option to choose, really. Um, And so that's really where I come to at the end of the book saying, you know, the stakes are really high for creatives right now. People want to see themselves represented. There's opportunity in a lot of spaces with streaming platforms and social media. There are a lot of ways that, you know, we can see... Mass representation, but for stories to feel deep and connected to people, they have to be specific as well. And I think creatives, but also consumers have to be connected to the idea that like representation is going to be anything and you have a choice whether you want to consume this particular idea or you want to do something else, or you want to create on your own, right? The creation process is not one-to-one. You can create a bunch of things and see what happens. You know, I I talk about, you know, Issa Rae really shortly to say that she's one person I think is really interesting that she's in a lot of different spaces and I think trying to figure out what representation looks like for her and how she wants to connect to it without necessarily trying to say everybody's story she's saying a really particular black woman in LA kind of story which I think is different than some of the other things that we're seeing in pop culture
1: yeah you know I have to say I found it because I'm really interested as you are in pop culture, like in reading that and thinking about that. And last night I just saw the preview for Viola Davis's new film. Right. And, um, black Panther is getting this huge push. So thinking about all these ways, um, black women are being represented, but then also all the ways that some of that is still right. What you're saying is there needs to be more options because I, I keep coming back to, um, the fact that The Flash is going forward, but um, now I'm blanking <laughs> Batgirl, right? <laughs> is that right? Is not. Um, and and kind of what the power that exists in sort of some of these Hollywood and pop cultural spaces to still stop some representation, right? And so like what you're saying, you, we need as much as possible because there's still people out there who can say no. <laughs> Right.
2: right. Right. I mean, and ultimately, like having that having that girl be whatever she wants to be in this particular iteration opens the door. Right. In five years or 10 years or even shorter amounts of time for other options. Right. And so this is part of also what the I think the book is trying to say, a really small undercurrent of the book. Right. Is that, you know, these people are sitting in boardrooms in 1992 or in 2009 or even 2018, and they're making these decisions that also change the landscape of what pop culture looks like moving forward, But well, you have to be in those rooms, and you also have to be willing to consume or choose not to consume to have those options continue to proliferate, right? And so I think, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I'm not going to use my money in this way, and I'm and I'm like, okay, but you have to participate as part of the process of capitalism. <laughs> You're required to participate, Um, and pop culture is one of those places where you can really Make a claim for the kind of things that you want to see.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. So um are you doing are, so I'll ask you my like kind of final question with this. Um, but like, are you do you have anything you're promoting with this book right now or anything new you're working on that you want to kind of put out there and promote? Ooh, <laughs> um
2: I can say this book um, is There's been a lot of really great support for this book, and I'm really proud of it. Um, But if you don't have it already, go buy the book, okay? Uh (laughs) It's really fascinating.
1: It's really great.
2: (laughs) There's a lot of ways that you can use it in various places, whether for yourself or in conversation. There's some really astute things, if I can say so myself, that have not really been talked about in other places. Um, And so I would say if you're looking for something to do after listening to this, go buy a book.
1: (laughs) Well, and I also, I will say too, that what I, I mean, there are lots of things, but one of the things that I really loved is that because of how it's structured, you could use the whole text in a classroom, but you could also use a chapter in the class, right? And that might engage students in wanting to read about, you know, the other aspects, but it also sort of gets them part of that conversation. And it would be great in that way too. Absolutely. It's my favorite part. (laughs) So, do you have thoughts on? I'll ask me. i ask you. That, like, where do you think we're headed in 2022 and moving forward?
2: Well, I think um, since I have you know a foot in hip hop spaces and a foot in pop culture spaces, I'm always thinking about how hip hop is influencing some of the pop culture that we're seeing. And I would say that you know people like. Um, Sweetie, for example, who's a, um, a, I would say, semi-famous rapper at this point. You know, she has a lot of stuff that's going on. In the ways that we might consider Beyonce as a pop star to be, you know, she has Ivy Park with Adidas, she has her music, she's doing a couple of films, she's doing music soundtrack work, she's in a lot of different directions. I think that we are seeing... Um, black women rappers in particular, but women rappers generally, have the opportunity to do some different things. I mean, Cardi B has a show. Um, Megan Thee Stallion is talking about wanting to direct a couple of films. Um, you know, I think we're going to continue to see, you know, opportunities proliferate for people to just create what they want. Um, but also that, like, the particular experience of, honestly, Black millennials is something, or millennials in general, now that we're in our 30s and 40s, we are the ones that we could could create for ourselves now, right? And so I think that we're going to continue to see Much more opportunities to think about and talk about, um, like the '80s, '90s, and 2000s, in different ways. And I'm just, I'm just gonna say, I'm excited. I mean, I know someone who's writing a book about the 1970s, and I'm just so excited about what that book is gonna say because I, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't alive in the 1970s, but it sounds like it's an amazing thing to talk about. There are people who are writing about. Black girls in sports, for example. There are people who are writing about how social media has changed the way that we connect and move. Um, particular artwork forward and I think you know more and more and more of that is what we need and so I'm excited uh I think the next like five years especially is just going to be so fun to think about where pop culture is going but also the kind of scholarship and ideas that are connected to these these pop culture moments Mm
1: -hmm. no I yeah I I do I have to say that I really love to see Younger, well, especially younger female artists who are taking over um, on social media. I mean, Lizzo, that woman... Is she's got her like foot on the pulse, so she knows what to do. Right. You know, and so I like seeing that kind of tour, like, you know, well, Beyonce still can do whatever she wants to do. Right. <laughs> but like, Beyonce can do no wrong. But seeing also younger women, younger female artists kind of taking up that torch and thinking about how to move that forward in other ways is really kind of great.
2: Yeah, I think we'll we'll continue to see it, and having these these multiple platforms gives the opportunity for people just to do different things in different places. And, and as you, as a consumer, want to support a particular artist, you know, Lizzo is making shapewear. If you want to support Lizzo and her shape, go buy some shapewear. From athletics, you know, if you want to support her music, support her music. If you want to support, you know, her show, Big Girls, that just was, I think it's Grammy nominated, actually. You can support the show and go watch it on Amazon. I mean, I think that there are so many opportunities to engage with people because of social media and because the way that streaming platforms have kind of changed the way that we watch things. That, you know, if you really care about a particular artist, like go support them, you know, use it as an opportunity as a consumer to say, like, I'm going to use my money in the places where it matters to me, but also that it will create more opportunity for other people to experience these particular people the way that I do.
1: So on that note, maybe we'll, uh, because it's perfect, right? (laughs) But again, Aria, thank you. Aria Holiday, who wrote By Black, How Black Women Transformed U.S. Pop Culture. Thanks for talking with me for New Books in Popular Culture. Thank you. It was great.